so this is uh, it's our fourth uh, of five Sundays, looking at First Corinthians. So it's not exactly an it's not exactly an exegetical study. Not really verse by verse. That'd be yeah, a long time. <laughs> so, but but it's uh, but it's but it's a it's it's an overview, but um, sort of I don't know mid level overview. So we are looking pretty closely, not just saying what's in each chapter, but trying to unpack it. So uh, that's what we're doing. Is that okay? Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, it's usually better to start with low enthusiasm and with excitement than the, other, than, than the other way around. To start with real excitement and end up being kind of bummed out. So yeah, we'll, we'll aim at increasing excitement as we go along. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Next to Romans, a lot of people say Romans is Paul's most important letter, and uh, next to Romans, this is uh, his most important letter, and I think it might actually be his most important letter, because this is the letter, uh, maybe the best example of him doing what uh, he does most of the time. So Romans is a little bit unusual in that he doesn't know the church in Rome uh, very well, and so he writes uh, like a chapter in a systematic theology textbook. Whereas most of the time, he's like a, um, an emergency room physician. People write him a letter and say, here's all the problems we got. And he's got to quickly do a little, uh, a little analysis and triage and, and answer and give, him, and, and give his response. So that's what he's doing at First Corinthians, and this is the best example of that. Um, and we get to see him apply theology to real-life situations, which is what we end up doing. Well... Or badly, depending on, uh, on how much we understand uh, the New Testament, Scripture from the inside out. So, uh, once again, the outline. The first six chapters are his response to a letter he's gotten from a group he calls Chloe's People. And uh, these are clearly folks who are in a house church that, uh, where Chloe, a, w- so a woman named Chloe, is the most significant person there. Almost certainly, uh, she is a person of great wealth. That's why uh, it's named after her. And, uh, and, and they didn't have church buildings in those days, so you, met, you would meet in a home. And so um, she's the person who's, who's allowed her home to be used for the, for the worship service. And she's uh, a person of standing in their, in their world. And not unlike uh, our world, people who are well known or have money, and uh, you know they often get uh, a little bit uh, better treatment. Do you ever notice that? No, only I have noticed that apparently. Okay, so uh, so anyway, so she so there's a there's a couple of problems at that church: uh, division and immaturity. Paul Paul says, you know, you're 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 there in the church in Corinth. You're you're, you're you're playing each house church off each other. I mean, you're thinking it's like competition, and, uh, and it's not. I mean, the, becoming a Christian isn't a way to try to climb a ladder and say, we're better, you know, we're better than, our church is better than your church. Um, it's about uh, having our life uh, found in Christ and growing together. Um, so it, that fact that you're like, you're thinking of this as a way to, um, to make yourself feel better or to climb a ladder up to somebody else shows you're being immature. Uh, and then you can see the other themes there. Chapters 7 through 12 are Paul's response to 
I'm calling it the official letter. Uh, it's the letter from all the house churches together, so all the Christians in the city of Corinth. And so we're in the middle of that uh, right now. Uh, we're going to talk about chapter 10. I'm calling that knowledge versus love, association with demons. Chapter 11, uh, worship and the body image. And then uh, uh, chapter 12. So it'll leave 13, 14, 15, and 16 for next week. That's my plan. You all agree with that plan? Okay, that's good. <laughs> so, uh, and once again, the foundation, some of the foundational principles for Paul. Um, yeah, we live in this world, but our true citizenship is in heaven. I mean, he, he uses the phrase, we're, we are uranapolitai. Uranos is the Greek word for heaven. So we are citizens of heaven. We just happen to live here. So that's the ambassador image. Uh, from 2 Corinthians. So an ambassador lives in a country not their own. And they represent the other country to the country in which they're living. And if they're any good, uh, they ought to have some understanding of the country in which they're living. And if they're really good, they ought to also have affection for the people that live there. Uh, and th- so it's all those things are part of his image, uh, the ambassador image. So we live in this world, but our true citizenship is in heaven. And we get confused about that. A lot. We Americans do, a lot. And we're broken and we cannot fix ourselves. That's a basic truth of human existence. And it isn't just the Christian gospel that says that. The ancient Greeks thought that. The ancient Romans thought that. Listen to music from the 50s and it's all about that. And there's also this idea of uh, the reality of the realm of spiritual forces. We live in a world that pretty much denies that spiritual forces exist, although we're also fascinated by them. Uh, you know, but think about what ho- the movies Hollywood uh, turns out, or different uh, popular novels. Um, and, and Paul will say they stand behind human institutions and cultural practices. We're going to see that today. Uh, but the, the power of the unwholesome spiritual forces... Paul will say, has been broken at the, cru- at the cross. The crucifixion and the resurrection break Satan's power. Uh, but he's still dangerous. So after the crucifixion, before the crucifixion and resurrection, Satan is like a pit bull running loose in your neighborhood. But afterwards, he's like a pit bull chained to a stake in the yard. And you're, you'll be fine unless you stupidly, foolishly walk inside the length of that chain. Uh, so he, you know, he can't come out. Now, he might come after you, might growl at you, but, but James will say, for instance, just tell him to flee, and he's got to. That's, that's how much his power is broken. But he's relying on the, on, the, on the loudness of his bark and the hugeness of his shadow uh, to, scare, to scare us. And uh, there's also this principle. Some things are more important than others. That's the Greek word there. It's a present act of participle, ta diaphoronta, do the things that really matter. So adiaphora, that's a kind of, it's a $900 uh, English word drawn from the Latin, uh, which, uh, um, which means things that don't matter. So, um, uh, and he says what matters is, uh, you know, is love versus knowledge and, um, and the reality of the spirit. And the way of the world is contrasted with the way of the Lord. 
So uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to articulate here is pr- principles, is that, uh, is that Paul operates his life by certain principles, and so do we. We're just not always cognizant of it, and sometimes the principles that guide us aren't ones that we're even aware uh, in our minds that they are the principles that, that guide us. But there are certain patterns and, and principles that guide what we do. Um, and, uh, you know, if I, if I have promised my wife, Christina, that um, after putting off uh, cutting the hedges in front of our house for six years, I'm going to do it today no matter what. And, I, and as I drive down the driveway, uh, our house is on fire. And I say, well, that's a bummer, but, you know, I said I was going to do the hedges. Uh, I mean, that, that's not only foolish, but, um, well, I wouldn't do that. So, I mean, there are some things in my life that are more important than others. Yes, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, there are certain things you should do. You know, make sure you clean up your room. But if your house is on fire, spending that time cleaning up your room is a misapplication of your resources. So Paul has, there are certain principles that guide him. And it's like a compass. You know, so um, the parts of a compass, because the compass will always point north no matter what situation you're in. But a map only works if you're in the spot where the, that the map represents. So a map is not, is not agile, but a but set of principles that guide Paul, we're going to see some of those at work today. So knowledge versus love. He's going to say, uh, he, looks like, he looks like he's going to contradict, or he appears to contradict what he said in, in chapter 8. He says, uh, don't be partners with demons. And in chapter 8, he said, you know, idols are nothing. They're just wood and stone. Now, you can misunderstand him to think that, uh, that there are no demons. So uh, idols, demon, uh, idols don't have any necessary power, but they can have power if we let them. If we have uh, gone certain places in our life, we've opened the door to them. So he's going to say, don't be partners with demons. He's going to say, Hebrew history teaches us to avoid idolatry. He's going to argue some of you have participated in pagan worship services, and, uh, and that, that's left you open to those unwholesome spiritual forces. And he's going to um, say, so flee idolatry. So this is chapter 1, uh, I'm chapter 10. Uh, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So what, uh, what do you think? What strikes you? It's pretty nutty? Oh, heavy. Could be nutty too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that while they, were, while they were walking through the wilderness, they had this highly spiritualized view of what was going on. I think the, I think this, I think the food they ate was, like, was the, you know, the manna and the quail. I don't think they thought, oh, this is really, this is a good Bible study. I need some, I need a fill-in-the-blank sheet so I remember this. What he's saying here, of course, is that, is that they experienced life. They, pro, they, they, they complained, they whined, 
God, God provided for them, and they didn't have the eyes to see that there was something spiritual going on, even in the midst of daily life, simple daily life, like where am I, you know, where am I going to get food? Uh, how, how, how are my problems at, you know, at home going to get solved? That God was actually active in and through what they were doing. They didn't see the deeper spiritual reality. Does that make sense? So even that rock, and he said there's a rock that followed them around. What rock followed them around? Now that's the rock that, you know, that, that gave water. But Paul here says they, they missed, they missed the, the fact that, that in that act of the rock giving, <laughs> uh, providing them with water, there was evidence of God's care and provision for them. And that they couldn't see it, but God, even though they saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they didn't actually let it wash over them enough that God is actually with them, following them, caring for them. So here is, a, here is an example of physical things having spiritual efficacy, but we don't always see them. And that maybe we should think about that for our own lives, you know. I mean, sometimes you may feel like things aren't going our way, but, well, what about the, what about the things that have, you know, where it's been totally evident God is at work. And if, and if, um, if, if we're not happy we're not we're not we're, we're upset or we're disturbed by what's going on in our lives well maybe we gotta you know consider i mean who would we trust do we trust me do we trust ourselves or, or would it be smarter to trust god to know what what's best that's that's his lesson here so even though they saw all these physical things paul C discerns that god is at work there are spiritual things at work uh, in our lives so they were all baptized into Moses. The food they was spiritual. The rock that, yeah. So God was with them. There's a spiritual power behind and above and within physical things. And we can discern if we're reflective, God at work in our lives. And we can often see that in retrospect. You know, what looked, what at the time looks like you just got whacked, you know, and it, and it didn't, you know, you didn't deserve it. But maybe in retrospect, you can see, wow, that was actually. God's deliverance or God's hand at work. I learned things that were important to learn at that point. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up and indulged in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And once again, I mean, they, you know, he, he is, he, Paul, writing, writing to Christians is saying, actually, Christ was with them, even though the Old Testament doesn't understand that yet. And they certainly didn't understand that. But God, God's, God was with them. So don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So idolatry, immorality, and grumbling. I would say those two, Three, two of those three sound like major league bad sins. And the third is like, you know, well, yeah, we can all do that. <laughs> but, but, but he's got the three of them together. And I, I, and, and I think in part because he wants to say, wow, be careful what you get used to. Watch out where you take yourself, where you put yourself. Because you get used to stuff. The first time, the second, by the third time you've done something, now it's the normal for you. Isn't that true? Isn't that true in your own life? It's certainly true in mine. So as Augustine said, be careful what you love. 
Because we become subject to the things we love. So be careful what you allow to become normal for you. They didn't start out saying, hey, at the end of this time in the wilderness, let's be idolaters and, and like major in immorality. That'd be awesome. Oh, and grumbling. That'd be good to add that too. But that's where they ended up. These things were happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning for us at whom the uh, culmination of all the ages has, of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So this is the, you know, the power of example, right? When it, you think you stand firm, but the way we are is, uh, is that we can trip on our own feet. <laughs> you know, even after we've just won like this major victory or everybody's applauding us for something that we've done that's really godly. I mean, the, the very next day you can, uh, you can crater. And I heard a very wise uh, pastor uh, maybe 20 years ago at a conference, and he was, um, he, was in, uh, he was in his 80s, but he was like nationally famous, and he said something that really struck me at the time. He said, um, you're, you're really vulnerable right after some great success. <laughs> and and I, I, I had to think about that, and I realized, well, yeah, because like, you know, when, when you're, fo- you're in the middle of it, you're focused, and then you relax, your guard is down, and, uh, and Satan's not stupid. I mean, that's when he's going to, you know, he's going he's gonna to come after you. So temptation, that's the word, I think we've talked about this before, parasmos in, in Greek, from which we get our word pirate. And we lay, in our world, in our culture, we lay emphasis on the intent of the tempter. She tempted me. I'm just Gomer Pyle, walking down the street, minding my own business, and she tempted me. But the biblical, the biblical uh, uh, idea isn't the intent of the tempter. The biblical idea is emphasis on how we react to temptation. So this word can be either temptation or test. So in James, right, when you endure temptation or test, those, so they're interchangeable. So, like I said, our idea is it's not my fault. It's whoever was trying to tempt me. The biblical idea is, guess what? Life is going to be full of those, those situations. So the, the key is, what's your reaction? If you give in, then it was a temptation for you. If you endure, then it is a, it's, like a, it's like going to the gym for a workout session. And God will always provide a way of escape. But uh, endure it. That's also a piece of the equation. Enduring means, you know, you, you, you stick it out, and that makes you stronger. That helps you focus more on the, on the Godward part of you than the faulty human part of you. So Paul appears, as I said, to contradict what he said in chapter 8. Don't be partners with demons. Uh, and then we'll get to flee idolatry. So... Therefore, dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. So here, he's taking now a positive application of physical things having spiritual potency. So when we drink... uh, uh, Welch's grape juice and, uh, and smashed saltines. 
There's, there's behind those things, there are physical things, but there's real power. There can be real power. Now, philosophically, we say it's not necessary. Necessary is it's going to happen no matter what. But if you're able to discern it, it can, have, it can convey real power. So consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. So idols, in of themselves, they're just wood and stone. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. So there actually are unwholesome spiritual forces out there. And those sacrifices are, are, are offered to demons. And I don't want you to, part, to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, too. You can't have a part in both. The Lord's table and table of demons. And if we do that, we're, we're, we're actually asking God to exert his righteous jealousy. And are, who do we think we are? Do we think we're stronger than God? Do we think we're more important than God? So run from idolatry. Don't mess with it. Don't play around. Spiritual forces are real, and we open the door to them, sometimes without even knowing it. Where we take ourselves can open the door to unwholesome spiritual forces. But as we saw last week, the unbelieving spouse is in the process of being sanctified by the believing spouse. You can also put yourself in the, in the realm of positive spiritual forces without knowing it. So do not, so the Lord's Supper is the same way. It's just bread and mulch is grape juice. But there's a spiritual reality there and a powerful one. Not only does the body and blood of Christ save us from certain things, but it also saves us for certain things. So don't, either knowingly or unknowingly, try to live in connection with both God and the forces of evil. And he'll say, yeah, look, I have the right to do anything. But not everything, is, not everything is helpful. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. So no one should seek just their own good. Because if you're seeking only your own good, that's just evidence you're really not um, thinking with the mind of Christ yet. You're, you're thinking it's just a... And there were some people who were thinking, wow, I can join this Christian group because it looks to me like I have a chance to like rise to the top of this little house church here. That's thinking in a totally selfish, human-centered kind of way. So I have the right to do anything, but no one should seek their own good. So because we live in Christ and the Spirit within us is within us, if we follow the Spirit, there's, you know, we, can, you know, we can do whatever the Spirit tells us to. But don't take that thinking that you can, you know, that just means whatever you want to do. It takes discernment to know the difference between your own inclination and the Spirit guiding you. So you can go ahead and eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience. Even though that meat has been, you know, the, the, when, when the animal was, was, was slaughtered, it was sacrificed to an idol. And a very small portion was burned on the altar, but the rest of it was sold at Rayleigh's meat, you know, at the Rayleigh's meat section. So you can go ahead and eat it without conscience because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So that idol meat, even though it's been sacrificed to an idol, it, it doesn't have necessary unwholesome power. But if you used to, if you or someone you know used to belong to that cult where that where that where that animal was uh, was sacrificed in, in the name of that cult, well, then that that's like that's an area of weakness. Like you've opened the door of your life to that earlier, so don't maybe you shouldn't mess around with that. 
because you've been vulnerable earlier in your life. And if you know someone close to you who used to belong to that cult before they became a Christian, they're also vulnerable. So have in mind what will actually build them up or tear them down. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you go want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, oh no, that's been offered in sacrifice, then you know you shouldn't eat it for both the sake of the one who told you and the sake of conscience. Now the principle Paul will argue uh, elsewhere is um, the weaker brother. So it isn't, this isn't someone who, it isn't a license for the spiritual elite to tell everybody else what to do. It is, if, there's a, if there is someone who's less mature, less experienced in the Christian life, and they see you eating food that was maybe sacrificed to an idol, and that, that won't confuse them, that out of care for them, put aside your right. So I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why take part in the meal with thankfulness? Why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So, whatever the, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Don't cause people to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. And here he's articulating in, in short form a principle he's going to make very clear later on. I'll do whatever it takes to win people to Christ. That's the, that's the most important thing. I'll give up my rights because winning people to Christ, getting them connected to the, to, to the living Christ and, and, for the, and the Holy Spirit, that means, that, that, that's the, that will literally save them. That's the most important thing. And I'll sacrifice every other right. That's the, most, that's the highest thing on the priority pyramid um, uh, in order to achieve that. So there's Christian freedom, but not at the expense of others, and don't seek your own good. Uh, chapter 11, uh, women in worship. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That probably ought to go with the previous, that really goes with the previous logic of the, what is at the end of chapter 10. Now this next section is one of the most uh, confusing, one of the, or maybe not confusing, it's one of the most opaque in all of the New Testament. There are some that are even more uh, elusive, but this is way up there. I appreciate you for remembering me and everything and for holding me, holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. Let's see, I'm looking around the room. Let's see... Hmm, okay. Huh. But if it is a disgraced woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head, and also because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not 
independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Well, some things are so obvious you don't really need to talk about them. <laughs> so there's, there's a, a couple things to notice right off the bat. N notice um, verse 11. He's now saying, okay, um, there's another way to look at this, this situation. In the Lord, there is mutual interdependence. Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. So that's in the Lord. But in culture... The head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, um, meaning in language is, the, is uh, composed of sense and reference. Sense is what we're saying. Reference is what we're saying it about. So, um, I am mad about my flat. If we're an American, we're upset about our tire. But if we live in London, we're super happy about our apartment. Sense what we're saying. Are, are you mad? Are you angry? Or are you happy? Referent, what are you angry about? What are you happy about? But there's also the matter of connotation and denotation. Denotation is dictionary definition. Connotation is related ideas. So... Is the source of a river the same as the origin of a river? But they're pretty close, right? Is the source of a news story the same as the origin of a news story? Those are farther apart. So, but, but connotation affects meaning. Now, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. When authority is in view, like Rosh Hashanah, head of the year, that's head in Hebrew. Rosh is the word for head in Hebrew. When authority is in view, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, will almost always, almost always, 99% of the time, use um, the word archon in Greek for uh, for uh, translating from the Hebrew, rosh, head, when, when authority is the idea in the text. It will use kephale, the Greek word for head, when organic relationships are in view. So, if we just use that as a basis, it looks like what Paul is really saying is not authority here. I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man. But, that, but there's something about an organic relationship the relationship of the head to the rest of the body, that that at least is being emphasized. I'm just saying that's what the grammar would seem to suggest. But it's pretty clear in this, in this passage there is something actually more about authority here. So what do we know? Um, in the ancient world, women never went about in public without their heads covered. That was just the way it was. But... Um, Beginning around uh, 30 or so years before this 
text was written, the wife and daughters of the emperor began going about in public without their heads covered. And this was a way of expressing social superiority. So what Paul is saying here almost certainly is, um, if a woman, when a woman prays and prophesies, notice it's not if, but when they pray and prophesy, women should do it with their heads covered. Because to do it without their heads covered would be confusing. It would be suggesting, the reason I'm up in front is because I'm like way better than the rest of you. And so it'd be, it'd be drawing attention to herself instead of to, instead of to the gospel. That makes sense? Um, but a man ought to, uh, but if a man covers his head, uh, that's, that's dishonorable. So everybody knows that women have long hair and men have short hair. That's normal. Except every photo I ever seen of Jesus, he has long hair. So um, now remember, this is Corinth is a Corinth is a Roman colony. It's a Roman city. It just happens to be in Greece. And the Romans, unusually from the ancient world, their practice was for men to have short hair. So he isn't saying that's just the way God wants it. He's saying culturally, culturally, where you are, this is how people interact and if you're a missionary, you need, you, know, you, you need to understand the culture to which you know, you're visiting instead of just trying to impose 21st century uh, uh, California culture on you know, someone living in, the, in Uttar Pradesh in India or something like that. So it's, so it's almost certainly what he's, trying, what he's saying here is um, Basically, the, the one thing that we can all agree on is, well, if you are participating in a worship service, if, you are, if you're representing Christ, never make it about you. How dare you use the gospel to advance you? And he is saying, um, that's clearly why, and that's clearly, we know that's why people join these voluntary associations in the, in the ancient world. They often thought that as an opportunity to advance themselves. We do that today. Join Seroptimist or join whatever the, you know, to sort of, uh, to network, <laughs> you know, and advance your career. Don't, this, that's, that is off limits. So whatever else he's saying here, that's the basic principle. Does that make sense? So judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? No, they, they, they don't do that. They don't do that in Roman culture. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Well, not really. But in Roman culture, it would be. But everywhere else in the ancient world, men had, you know, men could have long hair, and nobody thought that was, that was whacked out. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I think we can say, however... There's, there, there, there's a significant amount that's going on behind this text that we just don't understand. And partly it's because 
you know, he's responding to a letter they wrote him. And we don't know the exact questions they wrote him. So I've done my best to try to explain what's going on in terms of sociologically and culturally that might help explain it. Maybe not my best, but I'm pretty, pretty, pretty close to my best. <laughs> Chapter 11. So follow my example as I follow Christ. Uh, women, when the women prophesy. And to prophesy is to speak God's word. It's not quite the same thing as preaching. Preaching is certainly speak God, speaking God's word, but this is a more general. And the, and the, the matter isn't whether, uh, whether or not they should. Paul is saying, of course they will, when the women pray and prophesy. And angels represent the world order. That's why, because of the angels. Right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about lawsuits. Paul believes that behind cultures and behind uh, cultural institutions stand uh, spiritual forces. So it's a difficult section. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place here, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and I kind of believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So, because not all of you do, apparently. <laughs> so the fact that there are divisions, there's some of you that are not acting in a way that really is consistent with the Christian gospel. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in your eating, some of you go ahead with your own private meal. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. I don't think that happens here during communion. No, no. I mean, this is sort of a mind-bender. Like, you're going to get it for the Lord's Supper, and, like, you're, you're, you're dividing it up. Like, the people who make more than $150,000 a year, they, they meet in a whole separate room. And uh, those who make between 50000 and 149000 you meet here. And then everybody who makes less than $50,000, well, um, there's a couple coupons for a McDonald's meal. And like, and we're gonna sit. We're gonna sit separately. Like that's like, that that is the way the world works, making divisions sociologically and culturally. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. From when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private supper, and one person gets hung, one person's hung, and another gets drunk. Holy moly! Don't you? Can't you do that at home? Are you going to impose that? You do that already at home. You're you're so immature. You still do that, but don't you dare impose that on a worship service. Or do you despise the church of God? Think about that. That's a strong word. You're despising the Christian gospel by looking at other people and instead of seeing them as made in God's image, as saved, loved by God, and as saved by the power of, 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 of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, you're looking at them in the same way that the world makes divisions. Wow, you just don't... You just don't get it. You think I'm going to praise you? Not in your life. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way, after somebody took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, my, the new covenant in my blood. The covenant that the Old Testament promised. The covenant that said, someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
I'm going to take out that heart of stone and put my spirit in you. So you'll actually understand me, not just have a good look at me, but you'll, you'll understand me from the inside out. My Holy Spirit will actually dwell in you if you just pay attention and start expanding that place, start listening. So this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the Lord says this because that, that's, that's the victory. Satan thought it was his victory, but it turns out it was God's victory over Satan. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, if you're, if you're doing it understanding this, or you're doing it and it's not, you know, and you're still living according to the way the world operates, well, you know, you're sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. I mean, this, God, this is what sets us free from the shackles of the way the world works, and you're, you're ignoring that. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Whoever eats and drinks it without discerning the body of Christ, if you don't sense, if you don't know that it's, it's the body of, and blood of Christ in this, and you ought to know because you are a believer, well, you, need to, you need to pick serious stock of what you're doing, where you're taking your mind and where you're taking your body, and uh, don't mess around with this. This is, a, this, is, this is, there's a powerful spiritual force at work. That's why some of you are sick. Some of you even died, because you haven't taken this seriously. But if we were more discerning with, our, with regard to ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. So we'll not be finally condemned along with the world. Uh, did it happen when you were young that your father or mother, when they were about to punish you, said, this is going to hurt you and me a lot, a lot more than it's going to hurt you? You remember hearing that? Yeah, I remember. I heard that frequently, actually. <laughs> so then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Why? Because this is a meal that says, because of what Christ has done, we are actually one. And we are not, we, we, we still don't know, we still are not yet living into enough. We are still somewhat anesthetized to this new reality. We need each other, and we no longer have to look with suspicion. How am I doing better than them? How do I get ahead of this person? Actually, because, because we're a body, we actually need each other. And it can be, it can be one of, it can be a life of, of comfort and peace and not having to worry about competition anymore. And when I come, I'm going to give you further instruction. And then chapter 12, uh, spiritual gifts. Now, I don't, now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagan, some or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. So idols are nothing, but there are spiritual forces behind them. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them, everyone is, uh, uh, but in all of them, and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given so that they could be really awesome and make themselves feel good about themselves. That's not what he says. <laughs> For, now, to, every, to everyone, um, uh, the Spirit is given for the common good. 
because we're a body. We're not different organisms inheriting this, uh, inhabiting the same ecosystem. We're one organism. And so whatever gift you have, it's for the common good. To one is given to the Spirit wisdom, knowledge, by the means of the same Spirit, faith by the same Spirit, gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits. All, uh, all these are the work of the one and the same Spirit and distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one is many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Now, just imagine this. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So the foot should say, yeah, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Just because it says that doesn't mean it's not part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. I mean, wouldn't we rather be the head? Anybody want to be the feet? All my life I've wanted to be, just help me be the feet, Lord. That's what I want to be. The spot between the toes, that's what I want to be, Lord. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, of helping, guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Of course not. And then he says, now, we only desire the greater gifts. And I, yet I will show you the most excellent way. So, um, um, what he's going to say is... Um, some of you, because this does come up in 2 Corinthians, some of you think that whoever has the most spiritual gifts or has the most exciting spiritual gifts, that means you're more spiritually mature. And here's the deal. God just gives those randomly. It's like he goes to his kitchen, opens the cupboard, pulls out a big jar, says mixed spiritual gifts, pours a bunch in his hand, kind of closes his eyes and tosses them out. And some of you get four or five. Maybe you get some really, ex- maybe you get some really exciting public ones. And because of that, you think you're more spiritually mature. But spiritual gifts are not the mark of spiritual maturity. That's what he's going to say. And then he's going to say, I know you won't believe me. I know you don't believe me. So, okay, let's assume you're right. Spiritual gifts are the mark of spiritual maturity. Point number one, you know I have more spiritual gifts than any of you. That means, point number two, you have to listen to what I say. (laughs) Point number three, what I say is, spiritual gifts are not the mark of spiritual maturity. (laughs) Neener, neener, neener. (laughs) 
But the other piece here is this. We need each other. So I'd like you to look around the room. Look people in the eye. You're not doing it. Look around the room. No, I mean... We live in a world and in a culture that values individualism and individual achievement. And that also means there's tremendous loneliness in our culture. But the teaching of St. Paul here is that we're actually built in Christian community to need one another. And whatever gifts I have, I've also got appalling lack in other places. And whatever gift you have or I have, yes, we may have developed them, but it's still a gift. So stop being so excited about you. And the gifts that aren't so flashy, those are the ones that we need to encourage. Because people with the flashy gifts already are in, are in danger of having their heads be so big they can't walk through the door. Does that make sense? So look around the room one more time, please. Look people in the eye. Wow, you're part of a body here. You are the body of Christ. The Spirit is in you individually and corporately. May our hearts be so tender that we discern that truth in each other and we listen to the voice of the Spirit and we're willing to go forward in His mission and ministry. Amen? Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for your love for us, for your patience with us. Thank you that you have created us that you haven't vaporized us, but that you forgive and you, and you draw us to yourself. May our hearts, like a prepared field, receive your leading. And may our minds and bodies have the strength to go where you, where you direct And may those who meet us encounter in the touch of our hands and the tone of our voice the love of Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said.